Well, let's turn to that perfect guide this morning, that word by which not just the young direct their way, but us less young people also direct our way as well if we are wise. Uh, Let's take our Bibles this morning and we're going to open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, We've been going, of course, through the book of Romans, and we have uh, begun looking at Romans chapter 12 and have started uh, seeing there that list of very short uh, exhortations, instructions by Paul. And last week, as we began looking at that, we saw that the, the first of those is that we are to let love be genuine. And we talked a little bit about that. And we actually had opportunity to turn over here to 1 Corinthians, actually to chapter 12, uh, as we looked at that. And we're going to take a little detour this morning and, and delve a little more into what we looked at there, um, particularly um, the idea of love and what that is and what that means. So let's read 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you have portion of this passage on the walls of your house in a frame. Uh, One of the most quoted passages of Scripture comes out of 1 Corinthians 13. But let's read this whole chapter uh, together. Follow along as I read. And this is God's Word. Let us give heed to it this morning. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word that you have given to us to to be our perfect guide. And we pray that we this morning as we hear it would let, let it have its full work. And we pray, Lord, as you have promised, that your word will not return to you void, but will accomplish that for which you have sent it. We pray that that would uh, be fully evident in us this morning as we consider these things, as we talk on them after uh, we leave from here, as we discuss these things, Father, uh, during the week. We pray that you would continue to use them for the, 
the growth of your congregation here in Reading. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, like I said, a, a detour here um, connected certainly from, with Romans chapter 12 and, and that overarching command. Remember, we started going through those commands and we, we saw that the first one was sort of a, a heading with an instruction for us, a heading for the whole section that we're right in the middle of in Romans chapter 12. But that first one was, let love be genuine. Let love be sincere. And we, and we talked about that uh, last week. This morning, we're going to, as I say, look at 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is writing in this section of this letter to the Corinthians. He's writing on the, on the subject of spiritual gifts in general. He starts it in chapter 12, and we did spend a little time there last week, and he's going to complete it in chapter 14. But he also makes a bit of a, of a detour as he focuses on a particular thing. But he's writing to the Corinthians to correct their views. You know there was much to correct in the Corinthian church, but here he's working to correct their views of the gifts that the Spirit gives and of the importance, he's trying to stress to them the importance of their attitudes in exercising them. In chapter 12 and verse 1 he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And then he goes on into this instruction. And he does that because they were uninformed. They were misinformed. They were very proud of the gifts that they had there in Corinth. But like in other things, they were misunderstanding and they were abusing and they were neglecting those gifts that God had given to them. And so Paul seeks to correct that. And before he gets to the end of that in, in chapter 14, Paul sets the whole discussion of spiritual gifts in, in the proper framework, in a proper perspective, which is the intention that he signals when at the end of chapter 12, he says this in verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. Something that takes precedent over any focus on spiritual gifts and giftedness. A more excellent way, a more critical way, a more critical thing to understand in the living of your Christian life. There's something more important, he says, something more fundamental. And that something, Paul says, is love. Love is the Christian blessing and it is the Christian virtue. We have received the greatest love, the greatest love that can be conceived, the greatest love in the universe, the love of God that caused him to send his son to send him to this earth, to live among sinners, to die at their hands in order that we who trust in him can have eternal life. And it is critical that we understand that it starts there. Before we talk about our love and what we are to do, we need to remember that first we have received love. We love him and we love each other in response to his love that he has shown to us. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. 
And we sang earlier today, I love because he loveth me, I live because he lives. And in fact, apart from God loving us, it is absolutely impossible for us to love him in this way that we're going to see. But once God has loved us, as we saw last week in Romans, it it is impossible for us not to love It is impossible for us not to love God and impossible for us not to love one another. And in Paul's discussion of love in this great chapter known as the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul puts forward three great truths for us. The first is that he speaks of the preeminence of love how it is more important, how it comes first, how it is the focus. And remember again that the context of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 are spiritual gifts, the place of those gifts, the source of those gifts, the distribution of those gifts, the use of those gifts, the instruction in using those gifts. But here in the middle, Paul inserts this chapter. And he is really saying here that gifts are fine. Gifts are important. They are a natural or supernatural part because they come from the Holy Spirit. They are a natural part of life in the church. But there's something that's more important because we should make clear here as we begin, love is not a spiritual gift. If you remember from Galatians 5.22, love is a spiritual fruit a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That makes it more important than any gift. Not all Christians have all gifts. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 12. We mentioned it last week. Not all Christians have all gifts, but but more important than any discussion of gifts, mark this, that all Christians are given love and are enabled to love Enabled to to mold and to flavor their dealings with all people according to love. Because they are indwelt. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the preeminent fruit of the Holy Spirit, the first of that list, is love. Every Christian is given the capacity to love one another by virtue of the fact that we are indwelt by the Spirit of love, the Holy Spirit. And the gifts that we are given, that we talked about some last week, um, we'll talk about other things uh, next week, the gifts that we are given, mark this, are really the means by which we demonstrate love to one another. That's the purpose of having them. And to illustrate how, how important, how preeminent love is, Paul gives us an example. And again, the example that he, he puts forward is himself. In verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul speaks here in four categories of spiritual gifts that that one might have, that Paul might have. Gifts of speech and of knowledge and of faith and of sacrifice. And in each and every one, 
They are all placed below love. They are all mentioned as having to be exercised in the, in the presence of love. And without love, they cannot function as they should. We cannot function as we should. And further, if the gifts are not performed in love, as Paul says here, any benefit that we might think we have or that we might receive is gone. We should also notice that the Bible nowhere says that any particular gift, spiritual gift, is necessary. Now, we were clear last week, Paul was clear last week, we saw this, that every Christian is given a gift, but they are not so necessary that you could not go, as it were, your whole Christian life without it and still be a Christian. But that's not true of the fruit of the Spirit, love. 1 John 4, 8 says it for us very clearly that the one who does not love does not know God. A loveless Christian is an empty set. There is no such thing. Love is not optional. It is not something you can choose to obey or not. Let's see what Paul says about it here. He talks about gifts of speech first. He says, if I speak the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And notice that Paul throughout these first two verses uses hyperbole. He uses exaggeration for effect. You see it here. He talks of having, if I have the tongues of men and of angels, if I were able to speak so wonderfully. It's, he says it's not enough to speak that way. It's not enough to speak well. It's not enough to speak eloquently. It's not enough to speak convincingly. He's saying one could have a great gift of teaching, of speaking, able to speak with great influence on any topic, bringing people to tears, riveting the attention of men and women, And Paul's saying here that if such a person, if you and I don't have and don't demonstrate love in exercising that, it means exactly nothing. Paul says it's like a clanging cymbal. It's like banging two trash can lids together. That's how profitable it is without love. Second, he speaks of gifts of prophecy and of knowledge there in verse 2. He, he mentions speaking and understanding not just prophecy, but all prophecy. He says, if I had all prophetic powers, or if I have prophetic powers, the, the, and if I have, he says, un, if I'm able to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, see, here's that hyperbole, and if I have all faith, if I know it all, If I have knowledge and understanding, but without love, it's of no use. We can have great emphasis of our doctrine. And don't get me wrong, doctrine is important. But even if we, that sort of works into what Paul is saying here. We can have that great emphasis. We can have all of our theological T's crossed and our I's dotted. We can affirm all the right things. We can reject all of the wrong things. But if we don't have love, 
It's nothing. It is of no profit. It is of no benefit to the kingdom of God and of no benefit to ourselves. Knowing and speaking the truth is not of any good for us unless we are speaking the truth even what? In love. Out of genuine care and concern for the ones to whom we speak. Paul says, if I had, all, if I had prophetic powers and understood all mysteries and all knowledge, without love it's not worth anything. He mentions the same thing there in verse 2 about gifts of faith. He goes on and says, And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains. Remember Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could speak to a mountain and say, be cast into the sea. In Matthew 17, 20, Paul says that even if you had that kind of faith, in fact, even he says, if I had all faith to the maximum, it's of no benefit If I, if you don't have and demonstrate love in your exercising of that faith, it is nothing. You are nothing. It is of no effect, he says. Then he goes on to the subject of giving. In verse 3, and he considers two kinds of sacrificial giving here. He says, if I give away all I have, there it again, again, all. If I give away everything, If I give all of my possessions to the poor, if you were to be the greatest philanthropist this world has ever known, if you sold all you had literally and gave it to the poor, the same thing is true. Love is of necessity if it is to have any ultimate good. Well, how about if I sacrifice not just my goods, but my life, Paul says. If I deliver up my body to be burned, the ultimate sacrifice, martyrdom. Well, you know the refrain by now, if I did all of this and yet did not exercise love as I did it, I gained nothing, he says. Love is the more excellent way, the preeminent way. Showing love is the Christian way. It is more important than the most important spiritual gift that you or I could possess, or Paul could possess. We saw why last week. Love is how we are known to the world. John 13, 35 and 1 John 3, 10 says that. Love, we saw last week, is the commandment of God. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another. 1 John 3, 23, 1 John 4, 11, 2 John 1, 5, all speak the same way. And love is actually even the proof of our salvation. 1 John 4, 7 says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It is the most important. Love is the most, listen to this, love is the most God-like thing that we can do. And without it, nothing else matters. Nothing else replaces love. Nothing else makes up for a lack of love. But what is this love like? If it is so important that we live in love, that we show love, 
then how are we to love? What is love? What is this mentioned last week that here they use that word agape? What is that love like? We looked at some specifics, began to look at some specifics last week of how we love our brothers and sisters, some very concrete things, and we'll see more next week. But today we're, gonna, we're stepping back a little and looking more generally at what this love is like, at the properties of love. That's the second thing that we're going to be looking at here this morning. We saw the preeminence of love, now the properties of love. And we'll begin again with that statement of John in 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. Listen as I read these. Beloved, he says, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Not God has love, although it's true. Not God shows love, although that's true. But God is love. Love is what God is. Love acts how God acts. Study God. Learn of God and you will learn what love is. And Jesus Christ, who is God, is the perfection of that love expressed as it is worked out in his coming and his life and his death and his ongoing work. In this is love, John said, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the light that came into the world, and that light is the light of love. And in these verses, then, Paul takes that light of love, shining forth from God, shining forth from Christ, and like a prism, he, he refracts it into a glorious set of, of colors, a glorious set of properties. As we look at them here, let me note that sort of underneath all of those colors, sort of as a, a base coat, is the fact that all of these descriptions, though they are translated as many of them as adjectives in our Bibles, They are all verbs. Why is that important? Well, it reminds us that the focus is not on what love is, but what love does. Because love preeminently does. It acts. Our society has turned love into, at best, a sentimental feeling, At worst, a synonym for sex. But what does the Scripture say that love is? What does the Scripture say that love does? What must we do? How must we act? And again, this is not optional. And we're only, you know, we're doing a whole chapter here in one day. We're only going to be able to scratch the surface of these properties. But take them to heart, people. Beloved of God, dwell on them again this week. Let them sink deeply into your heart. Meditate on these things. Paul begins 
his description with two positive properties. The first, he says there in verse 4, love is patient. It's long-tempered, long-suffering. Love doesn't act rashly and reactively. It doesn't fly off the handle. It does not give up easily. True godly love says, you have imposed on me, you have inconvenienced me, and I'm willing for you to do so again. I mean, this shows us how difficult this kind of love is, because that's so against our nature, isn't it? Our motto is more likely to be, vengeance is mine, saith me. But love doesn't do that. Love's primary concern, and we're going to see this repeated over and over this morning, love's primary concern is other people. Jesus said love turns the other cheek. Love is willing to be wronged. In 1 Corinthians 6-7, Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong for the sake of love? What's the greatest example of that? Well, it's our Lord, isn't it? He is the perfect example of that kind of love. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you. How many of us could honestly say that God has not been overly patient, if you will, for us, in regard to us? The patience that he has shown me And I'm sure the patience he has shown you is beyond anything he will ever ask us to show to others. But he asks us, he commands us to be patient because love is patient. It is a property of the love we are to have for others. Love is patient. Love endures and endures and endures and endures some more. But it also gives and gives And gives some more. That is, that it gives kindness. Love is patient and kind, Paul says. Again, remember, these are verbs. Love does not simply have kind feelings, but it does kindness. It acts kindly. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another. To be kind is is to withhold what would harm someone. Kindness does not simply say, be warmed and filled, and I'll pray for you. But it does good. It does kindness. It meets needs, even when it has been wronged. Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Even to our enemies, Luke 6.35 says, love your enemies and do good to them. And that too is a reflection of the love that Christ has shown for us, isn't it? Titus 3 verses 4 and 5 says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. The ultimate kindness has come from Christ to us. 
And if you would love as you are loved by God, Paul says, be kind to one another. Now next, he gives several things that love is not. And these are likewise incredibly instructive. The first three belong together. He says, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. That is, love is not jealous. And it doesn't brag. And it's not proud. And these three all point to the fact that when we love other people, as we should, our concern, our focus is on them and their good and their promotion, not on ourselves. Didn't we see that last week in some detail? It is not envy, Paul says. It is not jealous. It doesn't respond negatively to the advancement or the blessings that come to others. It is not bitter when the Lord gives someone to someone else that you have been praying for or that you feel you could make better use of. It still is not envious. It doesn't boast then or brag when something is given to it. When something is given to you, it doesn't boast. Love doesn't brag. It is not puffed up. Love does not think of itself more highly than it ought to think. Again, remember last week. It doesn't speak of itself too highly. It doesn't focus on itself being put forward. Love is not big-headed, but big-hearted. And so let us rather act in ways that take the attention off of ourselves and put it on others. Best of all, put it on Christ. Point the attention of others to him. Once again, the proper behavior was epitomized in Christ himself. He had the most to brag about, didn't he? He's God. But he never did. Rather, as scripture says, he made himself nothing for you. And it is, the only, it is only the love of Christ that can save you from flaunting yourself. That is what love does. That's what we're to do. Verse 5 goes on that it is also not rude. Other translations say it doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't act unseemingly. It acts politely. Love is polite. When we love people as we should, we're not going to be jerks to them. We're not going to be rude to them or insensitive to their feelings, even even in our thoughts or our actions. You know, some people pride themselves on on bluntness, on saying it as it is. And if it mows somebody down, if it hurts somebody, oh well. Sometimes it's necessary to be blunt. And even when it is, we are to speak again the truth in love. Paul in Ephesians 4.29 says we are to always speak in a way that is good for building up. Now sometimes that building up means pointing out sin. That's actually building up. But we are to speak that truth in love. And this extends beyond the walls of your family or of the building to those, even in other churches, to those outside of the church. In Romans 13, we'll get to this in a a couple of weeks, render to all what is due to them, Paul says. Honor to whom honor. 
Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. We talked earlier in looking at God's law about this is, this is what God gives us to show us how we are to live. And Paul says that love is the fulfilling of that law. And it should be true of us. It should be true of all of us. It should be true of us as a church. A church and the people in it should have a reputation for being friendly and engaging and welcoming, never standoffish, never cliquish. And that's to anyone. That's to to everyone, even if you don't particularly like them. You're commanded to love them. And remember, it's not just think this way, but it's act this way. Well, Paul then goes on and says that love does not insist on its own way. You know, this sort of covers everything, really, that we've been saying so far. And we'll say going on. This is the epitome of love. Love gives. Love thinks of and acts for the benefit and the advancement and the upbuilding and the joy and the peace and the well-being and the provision of others. Love doesn't look inward. Love looks outward to you and what you need and what I can do for you. The world is always looking at what's in it for me. But do you remember back in Romans 12, as we began that chapter, Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. This is part of being transformed, to not look inward, but to look outward at others. It's not, love is not self-centered. Love is not selfish. Again, the perfect picture of this is our Lord who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Love looks uh, not at it what it can get in its own way. It doesn't insist on its own way, but it looks to others. It is not irritable is the next thing. It is not, literally it says, it is not provoked. To provoke means to, to make sharp to become irritated or angry. We could paraphrase it and say love has a long fuse. When we love, we're not provoked. But love gives a soft answer, which Proverbs 15.1 says turns away wrath. Love tempers the anger that is sometimes stirred up in us. We all do things that would provoke others but love will not allow those things to provoke us first peter 2:23 again points to our example speaking of jesus says while being reviled he did not revile in return see we're seeing here i think with all of these examples that Christ is of all of these things, we're seeing that this is the way to be like Christ, is to love. Love's also not resentful. 
the end of verse 5 there, is not resentful. The word there, the Greek word is logizomai, it's a word that's translated in other places, even particularly in Romans, as to impute. We've seen that, to reckon. God reckons Christ's righteousness to us. It's the same word. The original says that it does not reckon evil to others here in 1 Corinthians 13. It doesn't take into account wrongs that are done to us. The love of Christ in us does not keep records of sins committed against us. This is part of love, the love that we are to have, the love that we are to show. And again, this is, of course, supremely seen in God's love for us in Christ. Romans 4.8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's what love does. Love is forgiving. According to Proverbs 10.12 and 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sin. It doesn't keep records of wrong. Now, it deals with sin. It, it deals with sins biblically, Matthew 18.15. It forgives, though, fully. You know, unfortunately even among those who tend to be disorganized and never remember appointments or commitments, very often those people become very careful and meticulous bookkeepers when it comes to things that people have done against them. But the love of Christ throws out those mental ledgers. Love is like spiritual whiteout in regard to the sin of others. It covers a multitude of sins. And even if we can't forgive and forget, we can forgive. And we can forgive and not stamp that memory for future reference. Forgiveness does not do that. Love does not do that. To love one another, we have to put that away. Next, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love does not mean unconditional acceptance. Anything's okay. It means being forgiving, but it does not mean ignoring sin. Love, true love, which is the love of Christ in us, cannot rejoice, we saw this last week, cannot rejoice in unrighteousness. Any more than Christ himself can. And boy, the world today wants us to to equate, or they want to equate love with acceptance of whatever. If you don't accept my particular perversion today, if you don't accept and rejoice in my particular rejection of God and his word, you are being unloving. That's what the world says. Well, we saw in Romans 12 last week that genuine love hates what God hates while it clings to what is good. True love avoids unrighteousness and, mark this as well, true love exposes and deals with iniquity and wrongdoing. 
It does it in love. It does it because of love. And one way to rejoice in unrighteousness is to do nothing about it. To let it go unaddressed, which is really just to justify it, which God condemns in Isaiah 5.20. When he says, woe to the one who calls evil good and good evil. And if we just let anything go without addressing it, that's what we're doing. Being loving doesn't mean that we never get angry, but it does mean that we get angry at the right things in the right way. Again, hating evil, hating what God hates, and loving what God loves. Things that anger God should anger us. Zeal for God's word, when it's disregarded, when it's rejected, should anger us. But things that are done personally against us should not provoke us. As we saw in the previous point. But it does, and here Paul returns to some positive statements, it does rejoice in the truth. It rejoices in God's truth. It rejoices in what God said. Love is never willing, never able to deny the truth of God. 2 John 6 says, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Again, saying the same thing that Paul says when he says that love is the fulfilling of the law. It rejoices in the truth just as much as it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Now Paul then concludes with four very brief, uh, inclusive statements about love in verse 7. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, endures all things. It hopes all things. That word can mean to bear up under, but the primary meaning is is to keep something confidential, to cover it, to pass over it in silence, to protect. Love always does what will protect another whenever possible. Love covers a multitude of sins, as we've seen. As Christ has covered all of our sins... So we are to cover one another's by not keeping an account. One commentator has said this. We can measure our love for a person by how quick we are to cover his faults. Love does not justify sin or compromise with falsehood. Love warns, corrects, exhorts, rebukes, and disciplines. But love does not expose or broadcast failures and wrongs. It covers and protects. That's the idea here. It bears all things. It doesn't broadcast failures and wrongs. You know, I've seen husbands berating wives. I've seen wives nagging husbands. I've seen children disrespecting parents. This shouldn't be. There's an old saying that goes like this. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. So, love bears all things. Second, it believes all things. Now, this this refers to the loving practice of looking for and believing the best in a situation or in someone else, in our dealings with others. It means to put the best spin on a situation. Love gives the benefit of the doubt you know, there, there are some people, 
And there's times that I do this myself, where, where we try to, when given several choices of what someone could be thinking or doing, is to think the worst and to say, yeah, that's got to be it. They meant to hurt me. They meant to, to neglect something. But love, rather, looks for the best. It puts the best spin. You know, there is a time when sin and its intent is clear, and then it has to be lovingly confronted. But as we love as Christ loved, we look for the most favorable outcome that we can. Look for the best. Assume the best instead of the worst. Thirdly, it hopes all things. The truth is, those that we love will fail us. But even then, love hopes. When your children reject the God that they've been raised to love, when a Christian is in a marriage with an unbelieving spouse, in these situations, love always hopes. Love induces us to hopeful actions and to hoping God and His goodness, hoping in God and His goodness. Again, it's not to stick your head in the sand and ignore what's going on, but it hopes. It hopes in God to work. Love never runs out of hope. It never exhausts hope. And fourthly, it endures all things. The word in the original refers to a soldier holding a vital position at all costs. And there's often much to test your love for one another. Whether it's one another in your family, one another in your church, one another in in any other situation. To, to, To stretch it beyond the breaking point. To load it down until it collapses. But just as nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, so our love for one another is to endure all of that. Even when we don't feel like doing so, we love because love remember, is an action. To love is to to bear what seems unbearable, to forgive what seems unforgivable, to hope in what seems hopeless, and to believe in what seems unbelievable. That, Paul says, is what love is. Those are the properties. That's the more excellent way that we are to pursue as God's children. So having seen the the, the preeminence and the properties, finally this love is so precious because of all the things, all of the gifts, all of the virtues, love is permanent. And so we want to see quickly the permanence of love. It's in verse 8. Love never ends, or 8 and following. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And then he illustrates, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. He says love never ends. Love never fails. This is really the main point of the the rest of chapter 13, these verses we just read. Everything else is just an expansion of that. It's an explanation of that, of, of the 
permanence and the preeminence of love, which explains why it is greater, it is more important than any spiritual gift. It cannot fail. It cannot cease. It will not end. As it is of the nature of God to love. If love ceases, then God must have ceased. And that can't be. Paul says here that prophecy which includes the biblical prophet who received and interpreted and proclaimed God's will and the prophetic work today as preachers proclaim the written word of God, that will cease, he says. Tongues, he says, that gift of supernaturally speaking in other languages for the initial spreading of the gospel, that would and did cease. Even knowledge will cease. The knowledge of these things, the teaching of these things, the things themselves won't, but the knowledge will will pass away. These things are destined to vanish because their purpose is temporary in God's plan. Right now, they're they're even imperfect. Verse 9 says, we know in part. We prophesy in part. It shows the temporary nature of these things. Not everything's revealed to us. Not everything's understood by us. But one day, we will be perfected in our minds, perfected in our will. And then we will know fully. In that day, that is at the beginning of the eternal estate, we will know even as we are known. When that perfection and completion of all things comes, we will have need, no need for, for gifts like healing and tongues. We will have no need for preaching or teaching. We will not even have a need for the written word because, beloved, we will be eternally in the presence and have fuller comprehension of the blessed living word of God, Jesus Christ, in whose presence we will eternally dwell. He gives three illustrations. Verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I did childish things. I was a child. When I grew up, I matured. I didn't need those childish things anymore. They weren't appropriate anymore, and I stopped doing them. In the same way, he says, the temporary things will pass away because they won't be needed in the eternal state, in the perfected state. In verse 12, he says, we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. You know, mirrors back then were simply kind of polished metal, like looking at yourself in the bumper of a car. That's how we see now. Everything's, because of our fallen minds, everything's sort of distorted. We can see clearly enough on some things, but we don't see perfectly. But then we will see perfectly. Verse 12b, or the second half of verse 12 says the same thing. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It's the same type of thing. The contrast between the imperfect now and the perfect then. And Paul says, when that time comes... All of those gifts will will become unnecessary. They will pass away. Paul's also spoken of believing and hoping. And here in verse verse 13, he says that there are three things that now abide. The first two that he mentions are faith and hope. In heaven, even those will not be necessary anymore. Romans 8 says, who hopes for what he sees? And that's right, in heaven all that we hoped for, all that we believed will be an eternal reality to us then and will have passed from glorious future to glorious present. And we won't need faith. We will see, we will be there. We won't need hope. All of the hope will be fulfilled. But, and here's Paul's point, one thing will remain forever. 
That's love. Love never fails. Love never ends. It will never fail. It will never become passe or unimportant. We won't need faith for eternity. We won't need hope for eternity. But we will need love and have love for eternity. Love is the greatest because it is the link that God gave us with himself. God is love. And we are to love one another, beloved. Love is what motivated God to send his son what Paul calls in Ephesians 2 the great love with which he loved us. So, beloved congregation, love is what we need more than any spiritual gift. Oh, we need the gifts. We've already talked about that, and we'll keep talking about it. We need that. We desperately need the gifts. We need to exercise the gifts of the Spirit in the church today, and thank God that we have them, and thank God that we are able to exercise them. But we need love more. We need love more. We need to love one another genuinely, Romans 12. Deeply, sacrificially, we need to love those who are within the church. We need to love those who are outside of the church. It's perhaps them we need to love most because they don't know this kind of love that we have that we've been given. And they need to. They need to know the one who gives this love and works this love in his people. They need to know that God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave his son. In the coming week, beloved, let's start taking the steps to demonstrate that genuine love that Paul describes here. And that he describes as preeminent. Love is the greatest virtue. It is preeminent over all. It is a special kind of love which reflects the love of Christ and is demonstrated by these certain properties that we looked at. And it will continue to do that forever. It is permanent. It will never fade. It will never fail. It will never cease. But love will be our greatest joy in eternity to recognize and to know and to be reminded for days without end, that God loves us and that we are to love him and each other. And to that, let us say, amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to love. Help us to see the importance of it. Help us to understand that if we are Christians, we will love Help us to understand how to love. Help us to understand love is not merely uh, an emotion, but an action. Help us to, to demonstrate love, even as God demonstrated love for us. Help us to demonstrate love for one another. Help us to look to one another, to see them as more important than ourselves. To look for the good. We pray, God, that that you would build us up in our love here. We thank you for the love that we do have for one another, and we pray that you would ever increase that love, Father, that we would be known as a church that loves. And in doing so, Father, may we show ourselves to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen.